Welcome to The Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association, where we discuss news and views from those in the jazz media, writers, broadcasters, photographers, videographers, and other professionals documenting the entire ecosystem of jazz. Welcome to The Buzz, the official podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association. I'm your host, Rick Mitchell, and today we are going to be talking to journalists who have started their own web pages and published their work on their own web pages. Joe Meda in Portland, Oregon, and Didi McNeil in Southern California. I'm with Joe now. Didi will be joining us later in the program. Good morning, Joe. How are you doing? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. So Joe and I both live in Portland, Oregon, so we see each other around town from time to time. Joe started out, he has a bit of an unusual background for a a jazz journalist. He started out in the record business and also is a former past president of the PDX Jazz Festival, oversaw some of the festival's most successful years. He started a website called Jerry Jazz Musician back in the 1990s when the whole concept of the World Wide Web was still pretty new. And so he's been doing this now for close to 25 years, and it's still going strong. Joe, I saw that you recently published an interview with Winston James, who has written a book on the poet Claude McKay. And you also have a regular jazz history quiz. You asked, who is the most recorded bassist in history? And I got it wrong. (laughs) I thought it was Ray Brown. And I think I remember reading somewhere that it was Ray Brown, but Milt Hinton makes more sense, obviously, because of his long career. So anyway, tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, what you did before you started the website, how you got to Portland, and then what led you to start the website, Jerry Jazz Musician. Yeah, well, so I'm originally from San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in the East Bay, just in the suburb of Oakland. And I moved up to Portland in the late 70s, just really for a short time, but I loved it up here. I wound up getting a job in the record business, went up managing a one-stop, which is a a distributor of records and tapes at the time. So I got to interface with record shops all over the West Coast, and and, uh, it was something that I was passionate about. My interest in jazz began well before that, when I grew up, when I was growing up in the Bay Area. I used to go to Tower Records and Leopold's in Berkeley and and would buy everything from Elton John, the Beatles, to Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Louis Armstrong. So I have a wide interest in jazz. When I moved to Portland, uh, after my stint with this record distributor, I got involved with another distributor and then started my own business where I repped a variety of independent record and tape companies. And that that morphed into the video business. uh, And I became an executive for uh, several companies, most recently a a company called Echo Bridge uh, Home Entertainment, where my responsibilities were to sell and manage the business with Walmart. So (laughs) it's it's about as far removed from jazz as you can imagine, but I had to pay the bills. So I started uh, Jerry Jazz Musician in the late 1990s, and the internet was just getting started. And the original idea was to create uh, products around this fictitious character, Jerry Jazz Musician, who 
was born out of a stand-up comedy routine by Woody Allen back in the late 50s, early 60s, where he was, you may remember that he was a jazz musician, a clarinetist, and he described in one of his routines how he was going to a clarinet lesson, riding the subway, and he said he was dressed Jerry jazz musician style. <laughs> so that just kind of put in my head that he, he's this hip character that attends jazz concerts, goes to bookstores, record shops, things like that. So I, I built this whole concept around this character. And the idea was to create a company, a kind of a lifestyle company that would sort of communicate my passion for jazz through these products. When the internet came along, it seemed like the thing to do would be to illustrate this character in all these settings in jazz history. And I and then to build catalogs around these. So, for example, there was one early illustration with Jerry Jazz Musician out in front of uh, the, the Vanguard. And the idea was to sell books and CDs, that kind of thing around around that that experience. So you publish your own writing as well as others others' writings. And over the past 20 years, you've published I don't I don't know, hundreds of pieces. And how do you decide what to put on there? Like, for example, on your website now, there's a very personal essay that you recently wrote about events in your personal life. There's also this interview with Winston James and your jazz history quiz. And, you know, if you, and then you can just trace it back through the archives. How do you decide what you're going to put on there? And how do writers submit their work to you to be published? Yeah, so you could sort of think of Jerry Jazz Position as being a literary magazine with, with jazz music as the centerpiece. So the way that people get published is that they submit their poetry and their short fiction, personal histories, uh, things like that. They submit it, and I just, you know, I'm the arbiter of what gets published. I do have other people that help me with short fiction. We have a short fiction contest, so some people will will help me uh, determine what the winning story is. But basically, the poems and short stories that I receive are narratives with their own experience with jazz and their experience with musicians that have touch them over the years. So the quality is obviously very important. Uh, I get submissions on almost on a daily basis. And certainly more more pieces are rejected and, and accepted, unfortunately. But, but my goal is to encourage writers to write and give them a, a community in which to participate in. How do they find out about you? I mean, you've been around a while now, but in the beginning, anyway, how did people find out about you? Well, it's really an organic thing. People, especially at this stage, poets tell other poets, writers tell other writers, artists tell other artists. So there's this ongoing community of hundreds of people that come to the website to not only read their own work, but also to read uh, other people's work. And, and obviously, there's also some search engine optimization that I do on my site that gets people there. And I'm not real adept at social media, so I don't have a, an ongoing Facebook page. I have a small Twitter page that I don't <laughs> do a particularly good job promoting. But so most everything is organic searches and people talking to each other. 
Well, to be clear, nobody gets paid for publishing their work on your page, right? And you you also don't make any money. Is that correct? This is a complete labor of love on everybody's part. There is certainly some hope that someday this can be monetized, but that's not a priority of mine. My priority of mine is, is to just do the work, make a, create a community for people to share their passion for, for jazz music. Tell me a little bit about the Claude McKay piece that's on there now. Well, so uh, that's an interesting thing because I've always been interested in the, in the Harlem Renaissance, particularly the writers of the Harlem Renaissance. And, and years and years ago, I bought a book called Black Voices, which was basically an anthology of black literature. And Claude McKay was one of the poets. Uh, of course, Langston Hughes was in there, and Ralph Ellison, and, and Richard Wright. So I learned a lot about about the about black history through that anthology. So when I saw that there was a biography of Claude McKay, I was very curious about not only his his art, uh, his his poetry, but also his politics, which was revealing uh, in this book. And oftentimes, what I'll try to do with these interviews is not just to interview biographers of jazz musicians, which of course is a big component of this, but it's also to embrace this wider culture of jazz music and people that affected the artists and jazz musicians at that time. So he he certainly fit into that as somebody who had a deep impact on Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and I really wanted to hear his story and, and publish it on my site. So what are some of the most memorable interviews that you've either done yourself or have published over the years? Well, early on, I had some really strong supporters in the jazz community. Uh, Gary Giddens, Nat Hentoff, Stanley Crouch were, were three very early supporters that participated on the site in, in a variety of ways. Most prominently, Gary Giddens and I had a series of about 15 interviews called Conversations with Gary Giddens that he spoke about artists like Sonny Rollins and Thelonious Monk and Ornette Coleman. And, and he also, uh, we had conversations about underrated jazz musicians. So that was a great experience. It really lent a lot of credibility to the work that I was doing. Gary's a great guy. He's the most eminent uh, jazz writer of our generation. So it was really important for me. As far as uh, interviews beyond that, some recent interviews that have been very interesting. Maria Golia on Ornette Coleman, was, which is a fantastic biography. Ricky Riccardi, uh, uh, the bi- most recent biography on Louis Armstrong. Bertha Kitt's daughter recently, which was uh, quite, a, quite a nice experience. But I also interview, in addition to jazz bi- biographies, like the Winston James, I did the, an interview with Richard Brent Turner on the influence of Islam on jazz musicians. Uh, Jeffrey Stewart, who was the winner of the National Book Award, I interviewed him on the Harlem Renaissance literary founder, Alan Locke. So so I, I try to really widen the scope with my thinking that people who like jazz also like you know, Black history, film literature, poetry, that kind of thing. So you don't really publish reviews though, right? Album reviews, concert reviews. I know you have opinions on music, but you don't really do reviews, right? Yeah, no, I don't do that. There's, there's already so many websites that do that and and great websites. 
you know, people like Mark Myers and Ted and, and, and Ethan Iverson that, that speak from their own knowledge. And it's more of an education side. Mine is more of a literary site that in, it really involves a wider community to communicate through their art. Joe, thank you so much for your contributions to jazz and for agreeing to appear with us. Let's have lunch. <laughs> all right, we'll, that'd be great. We're over. We have to keep pushing it back with COVID That's and right. all this other stuff. You're listening to The Buzz, the official podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association. I'm Rick Mitchell, and we've been talking with Joe Meta of Jerry Jazz Musician website. And we'll be back with Dee Dee McNeil. Welcome back to The Buzz, the official podcast of the Jazz Journalist Association. I'm your host, Rick Mitchell, and I'm here with Dee Dee McNeil, spoke earlier with Joe Maida. These are journalists that, uh, among other things that they've done professionally, host their own websites where they publish jazz journalism. Dee Dee's website is musicalmemoirswordpress.com. Did I get that right? Almost? It, almost. Okay. It's musicalmemoirs.com. WordPress.com. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how that got started. I saw you have archives on there going back to about 2010. It started around, I think it started at 2015, although I haven't really thought about that in a long time. But it could have gone, it could have been 2010, but I think it was 2015. And I started it because I realized that we didn't have a lot of places where jazz artists could get the reviews that they used to get back in the day. Like I started writing articles for newspapers and magazines in 1973 when I was a publicist for A&M Records in Hollywood. And when I got hired there, I realized they didn't really have a black press list for Hollywood-based record companies. They serviced Ebony Jet Magazine, and Essence magazine. But the black press was way more extensive. So they didn't know that. So every city has a black newspaper back in the 70s. And I started a gossip column about music to get into those papers and syndicated it to all the press who agreed to run it across the country and in Canada. So I got all of the AM artists' names out there, like Joan Armentrading the talented guitarist, singer, songwriter, and LTD, where Jeffrey Osborne was their drummer and singer. You know, he went on to get a solo career. And I wrote a, a, about amazing songwriters like Bernard Eigner, who wrote Everything Must Change. I was on the lot with Bernard. He was a songwriter at AM, and he played that song for me and sang it to me, and we both cried. I knew that song was going to be a hit record. And Leon Ware, who worked with Marvin Gaye. So it was beautiful. You know, it was a beautiful time in music, period. I wrote the first eight-page spread on Shaka Khan and Rufus for a magazine called Black Star. That was a Johnson publication. They were a glossy magazine. You know, Johnson did and st still did Ebony. That remained solid. And Jet Magazine. Unfortunately, we lost Black Star. 
So when I saw the need for a writer that reviewed jazz, I just took it on as a project to keep jazz music alive. So let's go back just a little farther. You started out as a singer and a songwriter. I did as a songwriter, not a singer. (laughs) And and you, you wrote your songs have been recorded by Nancy Wilson and various Motown artists. And is that what that, I don't know, is, is Motown's move? Is that what brought you to L.A.? Well, part of it, yes, part of it was because I was a contract writer with Motown and I was blessed to have many of my songs recorded by the Four Tops, Edwin Starr, David Ruffin, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Dan Ross and the Supremes. (laughs) Way back there at the original Motown in Detroit, yeah. And then you became the uh, publicist at United Artists Blue Note Records. And After A&M, A&M. in mm-hmm. the early 70s, first African-American mm-hmm. female publicist at a major yeah. record label. Right. Because I had two children to support. I was a single parent and I had to get a day job. So that was something I loved doing because I've always loved writing. So that worked out perfectly to be a publicist at United Artists Blue Note. I represented Donald Byrd and Bobby Womack. I met Ike and Tina Turner. So exciting time. Well, so you've been on kind of on both sides of the journalism. You've been an artist as a songwriter and a publicist and also a reviewer. How do you balance those roles? You told me earlier you always really wanted to be a journalist. That's all I really wanted to be. Well, I started a jazz magazine with Bill Chappelle in the 70s was called the Soul and Jazz Record. We gave Natalie Cole her very first album that came out. We gave Natalie her very first cover. And I interviewed people like Johnny Mathis. You know, when I was a jazz vocalist, I was reviewed several times by journalists who came out to my show. And I, you know, was published in Los Angeles Times. And I realized that that time was gone out here. I mean, you can hire, unless you're with a major label, the local artists are not getting supported. And that was another reason that I began to write because I contribute to LA Jazz Scene magazine. A lot of my feature articles that I write, they have as their cover stories because we just don't have anybody writing about us out here. I don't know what it's like in Portland. I think New York is more inclusive in terms of journalism and support for each other. But out here, it's it's rough. So I also wrote for contributed to LAJazz.com for several years and all about jazz. All these are online publications. Now, LA Jazz scene used to be a newspaper and they went out of business, but they stayed online. So I contribute to them every single month. I mean, I love that magazine, and it's totally supportive of jazz artists in the Southern California and Northern California area. I wrote for Cadence, too, Cadence magazine, before they went out of business. This has been an ongoing topic of discussion on this podcast, is the decreasing opportunities for print journalism in jazz. The daily papers have cut way back, even the New York Times which used to have two or three reviews almost daily, 
now you you rarely see a concert review. You do see interviews and profiles. Exactly. In the LA Times, I grew up reading Leonard Feather in the LA Times. Me too. The late Don Heckman. Yes. Uh, right. And Bill yeah, Kohlhase. I miss Bill Kohlhase. He used to come out to live concerts and at clubs. He'd come to the club to hear you. Yeah. And Bob Camden. You know, I miss those writers. One thing specific, though, there have never been very many female jazz critics. You got uh, that right. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on that situation? Well, I think uh, Willard Jenkins, who was one of the founders of Jazz Journalists Association, wrote an article a few years back, and he addressed the problem that women had as jazz journalists. And I have found that to be a problem. I, I can't get my foot in the door in any of the major jazz magazines, although I have a long history of being published. The Historical Society of Michigan, because I'm from Detroit, I started sending them articles about jazz. And I got the cover for trumpeter Marcus Belgrave in the winter of 2021. But I mean, you just keep pushing and sending things out. And I just got uh, Joe Lovano. I did a short feature on Joe. It came out this month in Ambassador Magazine, which is the National Italian American Foundation magazine. So I go where I can to promote our music. But uh, I wish that I could write for some of the major jazz magazines, but I don't even get a call back. I've sent bio. I've sent, you know, substantive journalistic writing. <laughs> queries well, for what it's worth dd they don't pay that well anyway so <laughs> but it's not about the pay i know i know it's not about the pay it's yeah. about maybe i could offer something that isn't being offered journalistically from a female perspective the most recent posting of musical memoirs wordpress has eight album reviews of vocalists Yes, yeah, that is uh, true. Jean, Jean Baylor, Samara Joy, who's getting a lot of attention these days. Yes, they all have, all of those people have new recordings. And that's why I created that column, because I get hundreds and hundreds of albums mailed to me. And I listen to every single thing that's sent to me. Yeah, Samara Joy, I love her. I love her approach to the music. She reminds me a lot of Ella and Sarah combined, but she has her own style. Also, Jasmine Horn, I think, is uh, really good. I do, too. Mm -hmm. I do, too. So this is basically a labor of love for you. That's that's what I hear you saying. Exactly. It's a labor of love. And the writing, it's a labor of love. Right. And you are a member of the Jazz Journalists Association, I think, or I, I hope I you am. are. <laughs> okay, that's I am. I am a member. Yeah, yeah, I'm a member in good standing. <laughs> well, thank you for agreeing to come on. I appreciate what you do. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here, and thank you for asking me yeah. to be here. So I'm Rick Mitchell. I've been here with Dee Dee McNeil on the Buzz, the Jazz Journalist Association podcast, and we'll be back with another episode coming your way soon. Sponsors of the JJAs include the Berkeley School of Music, Joyce and George Wien Foundation, Jazz Foundation of America, and SF Jazz, San Jose Jazz, Stanford Jazz Workshop, Monterey Jazz Festival Kumba Workshop, 
and the Peabody Conservatory. The Buzz is produced by Jeffrey Siegel and features the music of John Michaels performing the tune Big Vic. Thank you for listening, and please come back in two weeks for the next edition of The Buzz. What do you think?